you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right before we get started i wanted to give a bit of context about this episode if you've listened to any of the earlier episodes and obviously there's always this perspective on hybrid cloud after all that's the title of the podcast and we'll continue that it's just that this episode is a bit different this conversation went on with a guy who's professional and somewhat personal story is so interesting that we never even got a chance to talk about hybrid cloud at all so the word won't even come up and we thought that that's okay because the story he has to tell is very interesting and very inspiring and i'm sure you're going to like it as much as i did so we decided to make it a special episode one that is not about hybrid cloud but one that is about kind of a, a stellar career in science and technology going from analog chip testing to ai and getting married and other life changing events and being a reality tv star and and how you eventually have less time than before after you retire so with this you know i i wanted to set that context you know don't expect anything hybrid cloud but like i said you know you're you're in for a treat so i hope you enjoy this episode all right hello welcome everyone thanks for listening to today's podcast episode Today I have the special pleasure of welcoming John Cohn to the call. Thanks a lot for coming, John. Oh, I'm really happy to be here, Andre. So we've been trying to do this for a long time. I'm glad we could finally meet and uh, get this together. It's almost Christmas, and what you can't see is that John is actually wearing a very stylish Santa hat right now. Unfortunately, that information doesn't come across in a in a podcast. He also told me that he retired fairly recently, but it seems like and that's why I was saying we we're, we're having a hard time finding time to get together because it seems like he's busier now than he was before he retired, but we'll uh, we'll let him uh, tell us all about that. So usually we start with just introductions, kind of um tell us um what what you know about your personal Uh, and professional uh, background anything you might want to share in terms of you know how you got to where you are today sure andre and you know you're absolutely right i i have never been busier than since i retired but uh let's see where do i start i was born on a snowy day in new york city in 1959 my parents loved me very much i was born in new york but we ended up moving to Houston, Texas, right at the heart of the uh, the space race, which was really a formative thing for me and I grew up to the extent that I grew up in Houston, Texas, which was really fun and just kind of remarkably when my mom recently moved to Minneapolis to near where you are, she found a piece of paper that I had written when I was 8 that said I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to go to MIT and I was like looking back at it I have no idea how I knew what MIT was much less what an engineer did but as i said i grew up in the middle of the space race and you know i dearly dearly wanted to be an astronaut and i sort of got the idea i wasn't good enough looking to be an astronaut so i sort of settled for electrical engineering and honestly i loved houston i loved the people about it but i'm not a big hot weather person so When I started thinking about colleges, I was thinking, "Oh, what's the furthest place from here?" You know, I hear about this stuff called snow that I know you have there today. We have here in northern Vermont, but I found MIT, and you know, I guess I didn't even remember at the time that I had said that when I was eight. But I ended up going to MIT, sight unseen. You know, kid out of Texas, it was so much fun. I remember many things about it. But I remember one time 
my first year there, getting off a bus from the airport and climbing over a snow hill and realizing it was a car. Anyway, I loved MIT, and that has been a big factor in my you know, in every part. I, so I started there in 1977, went to school there for, well, three years. I took my middle, my intermediate year, junior year overseas in Austria. And then when I graduated, it was a kind of a weird thing. It was a friend of a friend, you know, I hitchhiked up to Northern Vermont because I had a, a friend from Texas up there. And I met a girl at a party whose name I can't remember. And her father, whose name I can't remember, worked at IBM. And uh, it turned out that, you know, Northern Vermont is not, you know, what you think of when you think about a nexus of, you know, high tech, but it was IBM's second biggest uh, semiconductor fab doing exactly what I wanted to do in this gorgeous place where we live. So I moved there early the next year. You know, luckily, IBM still had the policy of, you know, granting you a spouse. And I met my my really wonderful wife, Diane on the stairs of building 963. She was carrying a blue binder and standing next to a guy who I couldn't wait to get in the middle of between the, her and him. But I, I, so she was great. She worked at IBM for eight years. Her father, my late father-in-law, Gabe Mariano, they grew up in uh, Binghamton, Endicott, New York, which used to be the headquarters of IBM. And he was a first-generation American. He um, got hired right out of high school and sent to sort of IBM college, and became a mechanical engineer. And uh, uh, he had 36 years of IBM. So when I got my 40th service anniversary in August, I calculated that between myself, my wife, and my late father-in-law, we had 84 years of IBM. So I think that sort of sums it up. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I have some similarities to that in that I went to some sort of IBM college in Germany, and I'm now at 36 years. Um, we'll see if I'm going to make it to 40 just a kid. Just a kid. Yes, yes. It is remarkable, though, Andre, when you think about it, is, you know, generationally, you know, I don't know that anyone this generation would, listen, I sound like an old guy, but, you know, would actually have the opportunity to work at one place for that many years and still have the kind of range of opportunities that we have here. So I should explain a little bit about what my current status with IBM is at some point. Let's park that for a moment. We'll, we'll get to that. I, I do want to go back to like when you will still were at IBM and like, if you could give us some examples of stuff that you, that you worked on that you thought was really cool. Sure. Sure. And, and uh, I can't, I can't in good conscience use the past tense because I still work at IBM. I'm now a, an IBM fellow emeritus, which means I'm old and funny looking. That's the only thing I can think of. So in my 40 years of, of uh, IBM, I've had at least four careers, and I think I'm probably leaving something out, but no, five. Hmm. Let's see where this goes. So I, I am a, a real hardware nerd. So I grew up making things with electronics, you know, vacuum tubes and things like that. When I was at MIT, I did circuits and device physics. And when I came to IBM, that was a natural, you know, IBM did device and, and process design for a specific kind of circuits called analog circuits. You know, there's sort of ones and zeros. We talk about that. There is so much interesting space between one and zero. So I was very interested in circuits like that, that would, you know, communicate with the world, like with radio and audio and video kind of amplifiers and things like that. So I was very interested in that. So I was first career. 
And then my actual first job was programming lasers to do precision tuning of features on on these little chips that, that are uh, we were making, which I loved. It was physics, it was lasers. I mean, how cool is that? And then one day the laser broke down and while we were waiting to get get it fixed, one of my colleagues said, hey, why don't you work on this software? And I'm like, software? Who likes software? Well, <laughs> and that's what I did for the next 39 years. But basically, I, I kind of fell in love with the the kind of software that you need to design chips. And first of all, I did for these analog and mixed signal chips. So they, they were ones and zeros and all the stuff in between. So this special software we used to do the simulation, the layout, the verification, the testing of, of those special chips. That took me all over the world because those that, that was a very, very hot business for, for IBM for a long time. And including, I, I was able to find a, a friend uh, over in England who was doing the same thing. And we, we wound up scheming up a way of swapping jobs. So we swapped cars, we swapped houses, we kept our own girlfriends, which was good. And, um, and we basically swapped roles. And then we presented this to our bosses at IBM. Aside from a single airplane you know, round trip, it was cost-free to them. And so it worked. And my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, you know, they said, you know, if you were engaged, you know, we would pay for Diane to go over there. And I was like, I'm not getting married just because of IBM. So we got over there and instantly got engaged, which maybe financially wasn't the best thing. But um, so then I was in England there for a while. So if I if I may stop you there, because this really made me smile, because I have a very similar story, because like I said, I grew up in Germany and then uh, I was offered an, an assignment over here. And uh, they said the same thing to me and said, like, your girlfriend does not exist to IBM. But if you guys were married, you know, it's all expenses paid. And we I had the exact same reaction. But then two weeks later, we actually got married. And here we are. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, I think that this is a great, you know, Andre, a great corporate policy that we should make sure it doesn't get lost as we reinvent ourselves. IBM is so great at reinventing themselves. We should have the you know, spouse or partner uh, issuing as, as, as one of the benefits, because it sure has worked out for us. I, yeah, I don't know, honestly, that will still exist, but it, it did at the time. That was in the mid-90s. Well, we could already always reinstate it. Anyway, so I did the analog thing for a while. We started having kids, and I realized that I wanted to go back to grad school. Or, honestly, my mother thought I wanted to go back to grad school. And she kept going, when are you going to grad school? When are you going to grad school? So when our uh, our, first, our eldest, Max, was uh, six weeks old, we packed all of our stuff in the car and we went to uh, Carnegie Mellon in, in, in Pittsburgh. And IBM had a really generous program at the time called the Resident Study. And so it paid for three years of a PhD, which if you actually think about it, it takes five years to get a PhD or around that. But I was able to cram it into three years, even with a, a young baby. And my wife deserves us a tremendous amount of credit for keeping us all sane. But that was very cool. Again, you know, talking about parallel lifetimes, uh, my son is pursuing, one of my sons is pursuing a PhD. And he also told us it was going to take him five years, even though, and he's now in year three of that. And then, but recently he's told us it's probably going to be more like six years and because he, he probably won't be done in five. Where is he? What's he doing? And where he is, is he? He's at the University of Texas in Austin, and he is doing uh, particle physics, actually. Yeah, that's uh, our youngest, Gabe, is four, just 
his fourth year PhD in biochem in Portland, Oregon, and he's looking at six, he thinks. You never know. As a matter of fact, if I had a choice, I would have gone back. I would have done it longer because I didn't have much time for partying or whatever else you're supposed to do in school. But what was interesting, though, is I, I had done this degree in in doing the analog mixed signal stuff that I had done here. But, you know, I, there were many times in my career where things just were lucky, I feel. And when I came back, even though the analog mixed signal stuff, the, the software for analog mixed signal was kind of a niche, it was just at the at the kind of cusp when when uh, processors were starting to hit around a gigahertz. And it just so happens that if you start going at those speeds, everything got a little analog. So I was able to come back and sort of migrate myself from some niche niche person in analog mixed signal CAD, you know, design automation, EDA, as we call it, electronic design automation for mixed signal. But then it became the import, it became very important for digital processors. So my sort of next career was I became the eventually the chief scientist for the design automation tech chip software that was used on all aspects of IBM chips. So that would be processors and at the time game processors, which was really exciting for things, companies like, you know, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo. So I really enjoyed that because I was able to sort of morph from what I already knew about the analog stuff into di- into high speed digital. And so since you said software, what what programming languages was that written in? I think we used abacuses. No, um, it was interesting because a lot of the early stuff was written in sort of proprietary IBM languages like PL1, I mean, which are became in and PLS and PLAS. But eventually we started work, uh, some of our early circuit stuff that I work with a really good group in, in uh, Burlington was written in pa- Pascal, which was, was kind of a, an interesting, you know, kind of a academic language that came out of Switzerland. And then we started writing in C++. But I think some of the things that I learned there were that all of these systems became kind of hybrids. You know, they were not a single monolithic whole. They were com- composed of a bunch of different pieces. And part of my, you know, my fascination was in how do you make software for people that can be end tailor? These software systems were kind of mixes of, you know, compiled code, usually C++, increasingly powerful glue code around them. So for example, our circuit systems were tied together with a, system, a language called Scheme, which was a dialect of Lisp, which is kind of a weird language, but one of my favorites. And then uh, we started building systems using a, 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 the world's worst computing language, which was called Tickle, TCL, tool control language. And so we'd have these modules of things like circuit timing, you know, how fast would the circuit go? Or, circuit noise analysis, you know, how would a, a, a wiggle on this wire disturb a wiggle on that wire or logical analysis? Does this circuit do what it's supposed to do? Or is it equivalent to this last version in, in all logical function um, in test generation? You know, is there a way to determine based on observed, you know, uh, if you uh, gave it specific inputs and you can see the observed stuff, can I tell whether it was faulted and in what way? Uh, how fast would it go, various things like that. And they were all then tied together into a scripting language that allowed you to extend, meaningfully extend the, the, the tools, write your own tools. And that was one of the things that I, just a, a lesson that I learned is sort of, you'll never completely write the, the, 
the tool that does everything that the next generation, you always can write the tool that the last generation could use, but you can never write the tool for the next generation. So you better put in some designed in flexibility. So the smart early users with your help can actually make their own kind of crafty tools. So that, that was really fun. And it was, uh, it was kind of transformational. That. that, that in fact reminds me of, so I have two sons and my younger one is going to the university of Wisconsin in Madison and he works in a lab there. And I can't claim that I know exactly what he's doing, but it's about measuring and monitoring and reducing noise on lasers, I think, and then writing software for that, right? So it's in that respect, it's similar in that it's a bit of a hardware software combination. So in that respect, they're still doing this kind of, they're still doing research on those kinds of things. Do you know what I like about that kind of, you know, um, design automation, design enablement? The reason that I liked it, it was funny because the culture in the world, not just in IBM, was that the people who were the hardware designers, that was sort of the cowboy culture. You know, they were the the men and women who got the credit for designing the new chip. What was fun about doing this design automation software is you had to be sort of out in front of them and you had to have enough detailed knowledge of the technology, the, you know, the silicon technology, the circuit technology, the architecture, and you had to know the software. So I always used to use the analogy. It was sort of like, I don't know if you've ever gone to a rodeo, you know, but it was like the rodeo clown the, the, the person dressed up funny who you know basically saves the rider when she or he falls off of a, a horse or a bucking bronco. They have to be very, very skilled, but they aren't the ones, you know, they're, they're kind of in the background, you know, just keeping things going, but you know that they're very skilled. So we used to at least tell ourselves that, you know, that uh, we had to have the skills of the designer, but we didn't have the egos of the designer. I'm sorry if there's any designers out there listening whose fragile egos I hurt by saying that. But um, so that was that was that brought me up to my first 30 years. So I had been doing that for a long time. And then if I can just change gears, then what happened is, you know, we're talking about our kids. We have three beautiful boys. So our eldest is Max. He lives in uh, Santa Fe now and is a master fabricator uh, for a place called Meow Wool which is a really amazing. I would like to talk about that. I mentioned our youngest, Gabe, is a fourth-year PhD student at Oregon. Our middle son, Sam, um, in 2006, when he was 14 years old, was on vacation with friends. And when uh, they were going out at, at night to get something to eat, uh, they were walking on, uh, walked off a curb and uh, a car swerved to avoid Sam's friend and hit, hit our son. And uh, he... Uh, you know, he had a, a massive injury, a head injury, and we got that phone call and we had to go down and we knew that he would, we, we knew what he would have wanted. He, you know, he was, we had had a family discussion about organ donation. And, and while I hope it never occurs in any of whoever's listening in, in your lives, the fact that we had had that conversation made that, you know, it was, it was a, an easy decision in a, impossibly hard time and he his or you know he was an organ donor and helped save four other people's lives and that was 2006 and i you know i I know that's a hard thing to hear but it was a complete reset for me you know and i gotta say so many people were there to help us uh you know kind of keep on this planet you know and i'm very grateful to my company ibm for taking such good care of us for a long time. And I mean, that's a whole deep 
conversation. But it also made me really want to change what I did at work. And that started a completely different chapter. I think before I start into that, I got to just take a breath because that, that's a hard thing to hear. I know these life events, you know, I, I'm very thinking now about all the challenges that we all face every day, you know, in climate or the, the pandemic or racial strife. And, you know, all of these, these challenges come at you and it really, you really have to, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about resilience and those kind of changes. Sometimes there are changes that we choose to make and sometimes they're sort of forced upon us. And, and the only control we have is how we react to them. And that was a really deep, 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 impact on my life. And while I would never say anything that there was anything good about that, it set me off in a direction in my personal life and my professional life that I would not have done otherwise, which I'm, again, it's hard to say I'm glad because I'm I'm glad that I did what I had to do. I'll take a breath, but I can tell you what I did after that. So I had been doing chip design or the software for chip design for 30 years at that point. And, you know, I have a strong, you got to mix it up every 30 years policy. You needed to sort of reboot. And so I actually got an opportunity to go work in IBM corporate strategy in Armand. My kids grew up in this kind of haunted schoolhouse in northwestern Vermont uh, in a town of 600 people. It was just a great base. So for that period of time, I started going down to headquarters in Armand to look at IBM strategy. And it was so eye-opening because I had spent 30 years concentrating on silicon, you know, and and chip design. And and it was a really, that was a magical journey because I did it at a time, you know, where, well, what the world sometimes called Moore's law, but what we in IBM called Donard's law, you know, chips were getting faster and cheaper and more capable at a rate that was just amazing. You know, I, I think about that uh, I just saw a comparison that average iPhone or Android phone has roughly a hundred times the compute power of the lunar module that landed people on the moon in 1969. Just and if what's really fun to me, you know, when and I was I spent a lot of time when I was in this corporate strategy role, kind of looking at those trends. One of the things that really struck me is that one of the things that drove all that innovation, you know, the advancement in technology, advancement in memory technology. The lowering of cost of silicon, the lowering of currents or power, therefore the battery life could go up, uh, the increase in bandwidth. It was all, a lot of it was for play. It was because people wanted to start watching videos on their portable devices or they wanted to play Angry Birds or Fortnite. And it's so interesting to me that that interplay of entertainment and technology, you know, has driven more innovation because people want to play. So while I was in that corporate technology role, I got to see so many things, you know, it, it was humbling in the sense that I had grown up in this environment of silicon technology and IBM was an absolute world leader in that. And in a time where it was just changing so rapidly and I thought, oh, you know, I know the whole universe. And then you step into another bigger universe. I had never really known anything about software businesses or service businesses or research businesses outside of chip stuff. So while that corporate strategy job just really opened my eyes to not just the company, but to the industry. And it was there that we started thinking about Internet of Things. You know, there was it was, uh, again, 2000, let's say 2010, 2011. Around there, that it was about Internet of Things was really bringing together a bunch of the stuff that I already knew. It was like making really cheap chips, really high bandwidth connections to almost infinite computing. Things I loved, and IBM wanted to get into that IoT space, and I didn't even know how to spell IoT. But 
what had happened, especially after our son Sam had passed, is that I was spending all of my time working with people, usually with students and kids, to make giant, crazy devices for people's enjoyment, just to sort of glorify science and technology. Like I made a seven meter tall robotic pumpkin as part of uh, our MIT club of Vermont, Vomit, Vermont's own MIT club. We built this giant robotic pumpkin for scaring children, which is a fabulous use of a MIT education. You know, it was great. And working with a bunch of students and seven meter tall carousel for carrying hippies across the desert at Burning Man for Ben, uh, my friend Ben, uh, Ben and Jerry's Ben, and uh, just started building all of those things. And so I had a big portfolio of devices I built for fun, devices that I built more as just for the love of building things with other people, particularly with kids. And so when IBM started to build an Internet of Things business, my portfolio was seven meter tall robotic pumpkins that, you know, jumped out of the ground and and were remotely controlled. That's Internet of Things. So we're now on career three. Well, maybe career four, analog designer. Oh, no, five, maybe, you know, analog EDA person, digital EDA person, now IoT. And that job was in Munich, Germany. And so every other week for almost three years, I got on a plane here in Burlington, Vermont, and went to Munich and had the, it was the best job. It was, it was uh, these two towers in, in, in downtown Munich that we actually got to convert into a, an IoT workplace. It was so fun. I'd been there once. They actually told me a story about the elevators there, that they said the elevators were so fast that some people started feeling sick when they were in them and they had to artificially slow them down because they were too quick. We had to slow them down when Ginny Rometty came over. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yeah, it was the same sort of thing. And it was hard. I mean, you know, it was it, the funny thing about all these stories is they didn't all have happy endings. It was very hard for IBM to get into this business. You know, it was trying to figure out because we didn't have the direct connection with the consumer. And, you know, we, we tend to be a, a B2B business. So the places where we were, have been successful are in things like asset management, et cetera, which isn't necessarily the places that are the most fun, you know, fun demo stuff. It was so exciting. Like those those uh, elevators, we had apps that would tell you how fast they were. You could We could control all the lighting and air conditioning and windows in that building, which allowed us to write whatever goofy words we wanted on the side of, which is always a, but it was a great job. So Internet of Things was was really wonderful. But over there, I fell in love with AI because AI, uh, especially machine learning, is, is such a natural mix with Internet of Things because you can basically, by having a, a simple chip connected by high bandwidth to infinite computing, you can actually imbue everyday objects with some sort of intelligence, you know, using some of the Watson tools, etc. And so I fell in love with AI there. And then so that begat my next job is that I got an opportunity from John Kelly, Dario Gill, uh, to, to come back to the MIT IBM Watson AI lab, MIT campus. At this point, about four years into a 10-year commitment, joint organization where we have this wonderful group of people uh, now just newly moved into a building right on the MIT campus where we do joint research with MIT and some other, other universities, but primarily with MIT on advanced AI. And so that was my sixth career. And it was very interesting, very humbling because I, you know, I knew the hardware part, I knew the compute part, but I was kind of a novice at AI. And here I was with a group, our, our group was 
roughly 30 people, a little less, but most of them were less than half my age and provably twice as smart. And it was so fun and so humbling working there. And so I've been there since late 2018. And then in 2021, so that was my, did I say sixth career, I guess? I had hit my 40 years and decided to retire from IBM. And IBM has a, a program for IBM fellows that you can become an emeritus. So I am now a contractor to IBM. I worked there about a fraction of the amount of time I worked before, but I'm still involved in my, and the things that I'm actually involved in most are in outreach that IBM does to help support, you know, students in finding out what IBM does and, and falling in love with technology and, and STEM kind of stuff. So it's been a fantastic ride, but I think, did we say six or seven? I kind of lost track. I think you said six, but obviously that depends on how you look at it. I, I'm going to add a couple more to it, maybe, because before we had this uh, recording, I looked you up on Wikipedia, and, and I, I usually do that, and, and I assume you're aware you have a Wikipedia page. Yes, I did not create that. Okay. I, I don't think you're supposed to anyway, So so, but it... It just goes to your credit that I think some people believe that there should be a page about you and they created it. Somebody must have created it. And one thing that it does mention is that you were also the star of a TV show, which I have to admit, I didn't recognize the name. So I, I don't think I've watched it. I'm sure there's, I can find episodes on YouTube, but tell us a bit about how that, how that happened. Well, it was interesting. Yeah. The show was called The Colony and it was on Discovery Channel for two years. And I was on the first year as I was one of the, the colonists. What had happened is when our son passed away, 2006, it really, as I described it, it really kind of cold reset of my life. You don't have the benefit of looking at me, but if you look me up, I'm a pretty funny looking guy. You know, I, uh, I look like, uh, I don't know, somewhere between people have told me like Doc Brown from Back to the Future met Santa Claus, you know, something like that. But I found that trying to share my love of science and technology with other people, especially kids, was like the thing that made me feel whole. You know, it, it was wonderful. It was about 2009 and I was trying to figure out, well, maybe I should go be an elementary school teacher. And then I remember that I don't like kids that much. <laughs> no, but, but what happened is I was really looking for some way of actually broadening. You know, I do, a, I still do a lot of work in local schools and, but I was really fascinated with how media, especially the kind of emergent media, things like YouTube and stuff were just starting. And it was just at that moment, you know, again, I consider myself very lucky is I really had, I had been looking around. I remember it was, it was December 2008 and I was talking to my wife about that. I said, what should I do? And she, she said, you know, go out and ask the cosmos. You know, she, she was really like, she's a very spiritual person. And I really was, you know, I went outside and asked the void, you know, what should I do? And well, nothing happened that the next day. And I'm not kidding. This a, a woman called me out of the blue uh, from LA and asked me if I wanted to be on a TV show. And did, she didn't give me a lot of parameters. She mentioned it was a reality TV show. And I'm not, a, I don't watch TV. I binge watch on, you know, Netflix occasionally, but I, haven't really been much of a TV watcher. They asked me to apply for the show and and uh, I sent them a tape and they lost the tape and I did it again. And, and then they asked me to come out and I thought, well, that's interesting because they had uh, several people had sent me this thing saying it looked, sounded like, but this interview was unlike anything I'd ever imagined because they, um, 
you know, they met me at the airport and instantly, you know, tied a bandana around my eyes, threw me in the back of a van with other people, but I couldn't see them, weren't supposed to see them. And then they tested you by making you take things apart, put things together and blow things up, which tends actually is a hobby of mine. So it, it went pretty well. And so I got the job and it was uh, 59 days, me and nine crazy people, you know, drawn from all walks of life. And it was on discovery. So it was all about making things. I have to say, you know, the fact that you haven't seen the show, Andre, is to your credit. It was pretty stupid, but it was fun. It was the premise was that the, the 10 of us were to be locked in this warehouse in L.A., in a bad part of LA for about a little more than two months. And the, the premise was that there'd been some sort of world pandemic, very prescient today. You know, it's, as a matter of fact, we're all still very good friends and it, it's been a little bit of a PTSD kind of issue that it really brings back some of these memories. But the idea was there'd been some sort of global pandemic and we had to rebuild, you know, our, we had to come up with ways of water, food, you know, uh, power. And it was a, because it was Discovery Channel, it was a build show. And it was so fun. And it was, it was really innovating under duress, which, you know, I think is a skill that anybody, wherever, wherever you're working, you generally don't have the time or the money or the knowledge. You never have all of that. And we were just thrown into it. But it sounds like you were building things and not blowing them up. Or did you get to blow them we up? We got to blow things up. Is What was funny about it is, you know, I was supposed, I only know this because I became the science advisor of the second scene season. It was quite successful. There were, you know, about 12 million people watching it. And it was syndicated. It went, it was done in translation all over the world. I mean, it's been about 10 years now, but in the years after that, I would, when I'd get on a plane or something, somebody would recognize, you know, and I, I didn't, because I'm funny looking, I was once on a bus in Nairobi and somebody came up to me and said, professor, but it was really fun to see. I, I was chosen to be the sort of book smart guy. And there was another guy who was uh, chosen to be the street smart guy. And we were chosen to fight, I guess. I now the casting and we became really good friends, which really frustrated them, but it was a really fun thing. And, and we had all sorts of different, really, you know, remarkable people, carpenters and machinists and martial artists. It was really fun. And, and even though reality TV is anything, but, you know, it was kind of contrived the, everything that we actually made with only a couple of exceptions, you know, were actually shown in true form. If they worked, they work. If they didn't work, they didn't work. And that was hard to get used to because, you know, we're not used to failing publicly like that. But when I actually watched the show, because, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you don't know what's going to happen. But when I actually got to see the show afterwards, I thought it did a really good job of sort of glorifying not only the science and technology, but the process of you need to make mistakes. If you're, you're going to be trying to do something creative, it's not going to work the first time exactly the way you think. It's going to take several iterations. And I really liked the way it showed that. And I, I think it, it demonstrated some other things. It demonstrated the importance of asking for help. You know, there was a really, it was always really hard because you knew that you could imagine a lot of people would be watching you and you, everybody wanted to own his or her idea. And, you know, it, it, ta it taught me in many different ways repeatedly that, you know, that asking for help was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of sanity and that offering your help to other people, you know, technical help or emotional help or whatever was always a good move. Not that you necessarily got paid back directly, but so I, I just learned so many things from that. And then, and then I, as I said, I was, I was the science advisor for the second season. 
And what they chose to do is they chose to get less technical people on there, which was brought its own challenges. But for example, you asked about blowing things up. Uh, the, that was filmed in, the, the, the second season was filmed in New Orleans, and the end was blowing the whole scene up. We got to blow it up, and it was 15 acres that had been destroyed in, in Hurricane Katrina, and we were supposed to give it back as barren grounds. We blew the you-know-what out of it. A funny story. There's so many stories associated with that, Andre. I remember went through there on, on business and I spent a night helping with the demolitions experts, you know, kind of put together these uh, theatric charges. They were explosives, but they were really big, dangerous fireworks. There was no shrapnel or anything. I was about elbow deep in Pyrodex. And then we went out as because we were in New Orleans and had a nice fun night. And then I showed up at the airport at for you know, at five o'clock in the morning for my flight, and they had a explosive sniffing dog, and I was like, "Uh oh, how's this going to work?" And they were doing the little swabs, and it didn't go off, and I was like, "Hmm, <laughs> what do you have to do to make it go off?" Yeah, super, super fun, and and meeting people completely outside of my my day job, it was just really mind expanding. It really was. Okay. Well, you do realize that probably now everyone listening to this is going to go off and try to find find it on, on YouTube or wherever else it might be. You can find it on YouTube. It, you can actually stream it on uh, Amazon Prime. It was Colony. I was on the season one. And I guess the message of it, Andre, is, is not even though the experience was kind of goofy, that Kind of going back to this, how do we react in, in stressful situations? And, and I think right now the world is in a hyper-stress situation that it, it sometimes pays to just kind of misbehave and just kind of jump into stuff like that. I got so much more out of it, even though it was hard. I spent two months basically eating cat food and dog food and rats and stuff. It was worth it. It was worth every moment of it. So I don't know if you, maybe reality TV isn't a choice for everybody, but kind of putting yourself out there and kind of getting out of your, your comfort zone. I found that that is a, a formula that when things are really, really weird, do something crazy, I guess. Okay. We'll take that advice. Well, we're slowly but steadily running out of time here. Time flies when you're having fun, as they say. There is one more thing, though, I wanted to bring up, even though I don't know if you even want to talk about it, because I don't want to drag you back in there. But I didn't even come across it myself. But somebody, I, I think I mentioned your name and saying, you know, we're going to do a podcast. And, and he said, oh, you're the guy that's doing these sandstones. So I wonder if you want to tell us real quick about what sandstones are, because I thought that was a really cool story. It's funny you were you, you bring that in because I was thinking, oh, I should have mentioned that. So you know, I mentioned that our son was an organ donor, and he was an amazing kid. He was a you know, champion snowboarder and a classical musician, just super nice kid. And when he died, a lot of our friends, as I said, the world kind of turned up to help take care of us, and it just kind of was a real deep message. And one of the things that people would always ask us, how are you doing? And they would, they would want to know how we were. So I started blogging every night and we started making these stones called Sam stones. Initially we made them out of, we live on at the confluence of two rivers and we used to sandblast Sam's name in those, but you know, we would cut out the mask and we would sandblast, but that took too much effort. So we have a good friend who's a potter. We came up with these stamps and we would have these parties. We still have them 15 years after his death. We get together and we take clay and we form these little kind of cookie-sized things. And then we print on the front Sam's name. 
And on the back, we put our website, which is samstones.org, S-A-M-S-T-O-N-E-S.org. And if you go there, there's a, a link where you can actually ask for us to send you samstones, but there's also a map. You can see where people have put them because people started telling me where they had put them and what they had done with them. And then it started to be really exciting because where they had found them. And, you know, that was 15 years ago we started it. And to this day, 15 years later, I probably get three or four every week of, of somebody placing or finding them. And they've been they've been on the North Pole and the South Pole. They've been up in rockets. As a matter of fact, thanks to my friend Naeem, there's going to be a, an imprint of a sandstone that's going up in a satellite, CubeSat, out of Bulgaria. Had them, you know, on desert islands. It's just been wonderful. And if you if you go there, we'll, we'll send you some of them. But I, we get to talk about Sam. We get to talk about organ donation. And we get to talk about love of music and snowboarding and the kind of things that were important. And we get to talk about the importance of having fun because that's really, really, really what it's all about. You know, I think that my biggest lesson in my 40 years of working is that doing the sort of playful stuff, I've had, a, as have you, you know, have a very serious career, you know, concentrating on, again, a sequence of things. But when I look back at the stuff that has actually fueled that, that playfulness has really, really made a difference. And it was not just goofing off playfulness, but it was while I should have been doing X, I was doing a little bit of Y or putting myself into kind of crazy situations that I, I, I couldn't predict. That was the spirit that Sam had. And it's really worked for me at, you know, to, to when, when there's uncertainty, the best thing to do is just kind of take a playful attitude and jump into it because if it doesn't work out, you're something else will. I know it sounds weird, but it's made me, you know, even with tragedy, it's made me more of an optimist. You know, I can't think of a better way to close this off than on what you just said. I want to thank you so much for coming. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Andre, I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to hearing it. And I look forward to hearing from anybody who's got questions about sandstones or the colony, or especially if they want to know anything about analog design automation. That's something that I miss. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll leave it at that. Thanks again. Thank you all for listening. I wish you a great Christmas and hope to meet you all again next year. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.